welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Wayan Carter, the founder of Salesforce Mentor and a leader of the Melbourne non-profit user group. Wayan is passionate about both not-for-profits and Salesforce, so we explore which passion came first and how he has been able to build a career combining the two. Wayan has worked for large and small not-for-profits, for Salesforce consulting partners, and now runs Salesforce Mentors. So he gives some insight into what makes the NFP space so unique, complex, and rewarding. We discuss tips for success when starting a Salesforce project, the Salesforce products that are often used by NFPs, and why Ann shares some insight into why he started his own business and decided on the model that he did. I think that Wayan is offering a unique service to NFPs, and I really think that he can add significant value on terms that work well for companies in this space. I really hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Wayan, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah, really, really good to have you on the show. And um, I've been on on sessions you've been running in the NFP world for your user group. I'm not sure that we've ever met in person, but it's great to have you on the show and uh, and explore more about your background and your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for inviting me. So I know you to be passionate about not-for-profits and Salesforce, but what came first? Where was your first passion out of the two? Yeah, definitely nonprofits. I started working uh, with nonprofits before I knew Salesforce even existed. I kind of got one of my first real jobs was working at Oxfam Australia. And back then I was more just using databases and, and actually in the donation processing team and a lot of the Salesforce implementations I've worked on are supporting. And after sort of working at a couple of different nonprofits, I was working at an organization called the Australian Marine Conservation Society. And they are a very lean but incredibly powerful national organization working to advocate for conservation of the oceans. And I was working three days a week. I was their office manager looking after the state cupboards, looking after their entire donor database, which was a giant Excel spreadsheet teetering on the verge of collapse. And they asked me to do a Salesforce implementation on top of everything else. And I just fell in love with Salesforce. I thought, here's a tool that really has a lot of possibility for changing the way that nonprofits work. And, you know, I say quite a lot in the different presentations I do or whatever that technology really should be an enabler for nonprofits, especially in the work that they do. And too often it becomes a barrier and slows them down. And I really saw the potential for Salesforce to crash through that barrier. And so, yeah, that's when I started my Salesforce career. I worked for nonprofits for another sort of six years, helping them implement, so working on the client side. And then I jumped to consulting because I wanted to accelerate my learning. And um, 12 months ago, I started my business. So definitely passionate for nonprofits and the work that they do first. Um, and really, Salesforce is the way that I want to express that sort of commitment for the, the sector. So obviously you said that Salesforce was really immediately a handy tool and, and you could see the value that it could add, but did you know that you could then carve out like this niche of being a Salesforce professional in the not-for-profit world? Like, was it clear that both worlds could align and you could you know, use the power of the platform to build out your career further from that moment you first implemented it? 
I wouldn't say clear. I don't think my career has been planned as such. I think um, I am that classic accidental admin that Salesforce loves to talk about. And in a lot of ways, I was sort of reticent to end up with a career in technology because I had no background in that. And so I didn't really see that as, a, as an option for me. But the more I worked in the space and the more I solved ever increasingly complex problems using Salesforce as a platform, the more it became obvious that this was something that I was good at and that people were willing to pay me for. And it was something that I could do that would actually make a difference in nonprofits. Yeah, nice. And it must have been nice to be able to continue down the passion path of not-for-profits and not have to go into that kind of for-profit sector um, and, and you know focus on work in that space. Exactly, exactly. It is a real privilege. And I think on, on the flip side, I would say also that it allowed me to work within nonprofits without having to commit to a career within a particular stream. You know, I didn't have to go and do a community development master's and work in international aid in order to participate in the sector. And, you know, I actually, I've worked with disability organisations, health, environmental advocacy. I worked with the Queensland Greens for a little while. So I've been able to get exposed to a huge breadth of organisations and different missions and different changes that organisations are trying to do. And I wouldn't have had that privilege if I'd sort of committed to working in one particular stream of non-profits. Mm-hmm. And you're in a fairly unique position in that, as you mentioned, you've worked for small not-for-profits, you've worked for big not-for-profits, you've also been on the consulting side, and now you're running your own business. So what have you seen to be some of the frictions, I guess, between partners and customers in the not-for-profit world that can sometimes impact the outcome of a project? I think a lot of it really boils down to misunderstanding non-profit use cases. And I think that also really depends on where Salesforce partners are coming from. You know, they're sort of partners who have chosen to work exclusively within the nonprofit space, and they tend to have a stronger understanding of niche functions like fundraising, for example, which just doesn't exist in the corporate commercial world at all. Or there are partners that have sort of had some success in financial service. For some reason, financial service partners tend to be the ones who dabble in nonprofits. I don't quite understand that link, but I feel like those types of partners seem to think that they have a really good handle on Salesforce and commercial use cases. How hard can it be to dabble in a little bit of nonprofits? And they underestimate how complex nonprofits actually are. And I would really strongly argue that nonprofits are more complicated than commercial organizations. For one thing, nonprofits have to raise a whole lot of money through fundraising or through grants or whatever before they can even start thinking about the work that they actually do, whether that's working with women in domestic violence situations or, you know, um, developing research or cancer treatments or whatever. None of that can happen unless the entire first half of the process is in place. Whereas commercial organizations, it's all like, well, I raised the money and that's kind of it. We've got some profit. Great. You know, so I think that's the biggest issue I see is that people come in and think, oh, fundraising, it's kind of like sales. Um, and it's just not. It's heavily technical, data driven. There are some very, very smart people who specialize entirely in fundraising. So you, you can't underestimate that, let alone volunteering or patient service delivery or everything else that nonprofits do. Yeah, I mean, I've personally seen some of the partners that, you know, they think not-for-profits are good training environments for their grads. And, and you know, they'll put people on the bench on a not-for-profit piece of work. And, and then, you know, it doesn't necessarily get the expertise or the knowledge that it requires. Is that something you've kind of seen as well? Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, a lot of organizations will think that they're being kind to nonprofits by giving them a nonprofit discount, but the sort of unspoken contract there is that they then get the less experienced resources on the project, like you're saying, which is pretty exploitative, actually. It's not much of a discount if you're getting a less quality service. And especially when nonprofit use cases are more complicated, you need your most senior people working on that. The people most experienced at taking unfamiliar functions and processes and turning that into solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that as well, not only with partners and agencies, but I see that with individuals as well, especially people who are looking to get a foothold into Salesforce space. It is really hard to get that first job. And often there are um, candidates who will try and get six months experience at a non-profit in order to leap into commercial world. And again, that's quite an extractive way to think about working at a non-profit. Because of course, if someone goes to work at a non-profit, the first three months, if not six months, is about onboarding and upskilling, especially if someone is unfamiliar with non-profits. And if someone leaves as soon as they get a better job offer, I completely understand that mentality, but you've actually extracted value from that non-profit. That charity doesn't exist to support people to start a Salesforce career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the charity exists for a whole bunch of other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'd like to see in those situations is um, if people are gaining experience from the not-for-profit is that they continue to support the not-for-profit, you know, in their own time or outside of their core work to give that time and value back, I guess. It's, it shouldn't just be, uh, like you said, extracting value everyone should be there to add value as well. Exactly. So what's your, your view? Like if a not-for-profit, you know, big, small, medium-sized, they're doing a project, what is the absolute key, I guess, foundations to um, put in place to ensure as best as possible success for the program of work? I, you know, I wish I had the, the sort of 12-step program to project success. And I, I was kind of looking at all through my consulting career, you know, and I worked at a, a couple of different partners And I was waiting to find the partner that just nailed this stuff every time. And I think in reality, it's quite a fuzzy set of criteria that ensures success for nonprofits. And I think on the nonprofit side, a lot of it comes down to culture. I talk a lot with Salesforce about the difference between Salesforce as a solution that someone has chosen and an older style system like Razor's Edge. And I'm focusing a lot on fundraising because that's what I'm more familiar with. But Razor's Edge is a fundraising tool that's out of the box. You turn it on, you fundraise in a particular way. If you want to fundraise in a different way to how Razor's Edge works, you're probably out of luck, but at least you know you get everything out of the box with it. Salesforce is a platform for innovation. There's like constant three major releases per year. There's always new things being added. Dynamic Forms has come through, which is going to be a, you know, fundamentally different in terms of how it allows organizations to operate. In order to take advantage of those things that are coming through, you need to have a culture of innovation to support your platform of innovation. And I think a lot of that is about each individual at an organization taking responsibility for the technology that they use. We don't live in a world where you can outsource technology to an IT team or to an external agency. It's not something that you lie back and have happen to you, you know? You participate it. It's the ocean that we all swim in. And I think organizations that have done really well with Salesforce implementation projects, but then also operationalizing Salesforce and continuing to get benefit out of it is where every single person says, I understand my job. I can tell you the processes that I do in order to do my job and what success looks like within my role. I know how I use technology to achieve that. And when there are things that slow me down or when I see opportunities for improvement, I put my hand up and I ask for those changes to be implemented or I implement those changes if that's something that I can do myself. 
that culture of personal responsibility for process improvement and for engaging with technology is really critical. And if an organization already has that, or if that can be part of a change management project as part of the Salesforce implementation, then I think you're really, really set up for success. You know, I'm kind of leaving aside the unspoken obvious stuff like have a project manager and clearly define your requirements. Um, But I think we can hopefully make that a given if you're working with an implementation partner to do that. But I think that cultural stuff is critical. Do you see that often? Because obviously, um, not-for-profits are short of resources and want to squeeze as much out of the resources they have in order to you know, meet the outcomes that they're aiming to achieve. So when there is a Salesforce project, do you often see that you know, it is kind of like a you and us thing and that they hand that over to a partner to do and then expect to be able to like pick that up and run with it afterwards? Or like, is that the common theme? And obviously you want there to be, you know, it's us, it's a one shot, we're working together to deliver this outcome and we're involved as well as the partner. But is that typically not happening? I think there are definitely still a lot of nonprofits that kind of do expect that tech is something that they pay someone else to do for them. And I think it's less common with Salesforce because, I mean, really those organizations shouldn't choose to implement Salesforce. They're not really set up structurally or culturally to get the most out of it, right? And they're the organizations that are going to be dependent on an agency to make all the changes for them because they don't even understand their own solution enough to know what's going wrong or what could be improved. And that is a dangerous situation for a nonprofit. But big organizations that have a lot of funding, they can afford to do that. It really just means that you're dependent on expensive consultants. And if you have the money for it, then who cares, right? But I definitely, you know, I saw a talk um, by a small nonprofit, five people in total. The CEO was the um, project sponsor, but also the project manager and did a lot of the implementation work. Everyone was excited. Everyone was talking about moving ahead with this. And they're really happy with the implementation project that they've done. Their team are super excited. And I think that's a great example of a charity that's done this well. I think smaller, more constrained organizations, there's more reason for them to work like this and more benefit for them to work like this because it does mean that they have more control over what they're doing and where they're going and less reliance on external consultants. So it's hard to say across the whole sector how many of these organizations are more digitally ready for change, but I definitely would say it's not about big, well-funded organizations do this better and small, underfunded organizations don't. If anything, the bigger, well-funded organizations can afford to have that attitude because you can just throw money at that problem. And you mentioned earlier about the complexities of of not-for-profits, and that's one thing that comes up often in conversations. When I'm recruiting for a not-for-profit and I speak to candidates, sometimes people will see that as like a career-limiting move in that, you know, well, how much can a not-for-profit use Salesforce for? And I guess that's they're implementing the MPSP. And what I've seen over the last couple of years is you have this emergence of what I would class like enterprise not-for-profits that are using much more than, you know, just MPSP and so on. What would you say to someone that's kind of doubting a career in the not-for-profit space in terms of their projected growth or career advancement? Yeah, look, I would say at a high level, I have developed a lot of my skills through necessity. You know, I think necessity is the mother of invention here, right? If you are a resource-constrained organization, you still need to solve the same problems as other more well-funded organizations. You just need to be more creative in doing that. I think it's a pretty fair comment for a candidate to make, and I think it really depends on the kinds of skills that you're looking to develop 
if you want as broad exposure to different clouds and products as possible, if you want to use only the high-end tools, if you don't care about Pardot, you want to be using Marketing Cloud, then yeah, you need to go to big, well-funded organizations. But there are plenty of nonprofits who can afford to use Marketing Cloud and are getting you know, a good ROI on investing in those high-end products. I would say that if you work at those smaller organizations, you're going to learn how to be a jack of all trades. You're going to learn how to solve complex problems using clever configuration solutions rather than just saying, well, we're going to custom code an integration, right? If you want to be a developer and you just want to custom code everything, then yeah, that's the kind of organization you might want to go work at where they're just going to blunt force solve everything through cash. But I have learned a huge amount about, you know, complex reporting solutions in Salesforce because the organizations I worked at couldn't afford to just pay a data agency or a BI tool to solve that same problem. So I wasn't limited in my ability to learn Salesforce. If anything, I was pushed harder. And when do you see companies using more? Because, you know, MPSP is obviously the solution that's been built for -for not-for-profits, but I know lots of not-for-profits that might still use other cloud, service cloud, sales cloud in some examples I've even seen. You know, CPQ seems to be a tool that's used by a few different not-for-profits. And then you've got like the schedulers and things like that of this world. When do you see a company go from maybe using MPSP to then broadening that and, and looking at other products? And are those the kind that you see most often used as well? I would say that very few organizations would just use MPSP. The reason is that out of the box, I mean, MPSP is ultimately a fundraising tool. There are plenty of nonprofits using Salesforce that don't do any fundraising at all or when fundraising was not the phase one or the core use. Um, But if we think about fundraising as a core example that a lot of nonprofits are going to Salesforce for, Salesforce is not an end-to-end fundraising solution out of the box. The MPSP doesn't connect to a payment gateway, so you can't process payments. So by definition, it's not a fundraising solution. It also can't easily generate documents. It has some rudimentary acknowledgement emails. So receipting and payment processing are missing from core MPSP. What that means is every organization that needs to do fundraising is already using additional services, whether that's you know using um, payments to us or using Raisley and importing that data through Move Data. So you know you're already using integration as a service and an external data source that you need to sort of integrate into Salesforce and report on slightly differently. In terms of core Salesforce products, absolutely, a lot of NDIS customers um, looking to do complex disability invoicing and tracking of entitlements through those contracts, they are looking at CPQ or a different NDIS product. A lot of nonprofits have a call center, whether that's for donation processing or for supporting patients or whatever it might be. So Service Cloud is really powerful for those organizations. And again, often they have more complex processes because not only are they dealing with phone calls and emails and standard case management, but the people calling might be suicidal or they might be in domestic violence situations. So the need to support those people effectively and correctly is critical. Yeah, and even core sales clouds, you know, that kind of B2B sales, some core fundraising functionality looks a lot like B2B sales, whether that's grants processing or major donors or things like that. So I've learned when I worked on a couple of commercial projects and did some simple sales implementation, I was really able to take that understanding back to nonprofits and help them use core Salesforce products better. And then, of course, all of the marketing technology. Nonprofits really have a high need for complex marketing for donors or for supporters or volunteers or event participants or whatever it might be. So every single product that Salesforce has 
can have a non-profit application. There is a non-profit in Australia out there using it. And one, one we've not touched on is communities, which I would imagine would be a, a product that would be utilized by quite a lot of NFPs. Absolutely. If you think about nonprofits as really being about a community of supporters, right? Whether that's people like family and, and friends around someone who's suffering from cancer, whatever it might be, or volunteers or just donors or whatever, communities really allow that group of people to join together to support that organization in really fun ways. There's some incredible organizations using Experience Cloud in different ways. I'm also the co-leader of the Melbourne Nonprofit User Group, and we had a session on Experience Cloud a couple of months ago, and we had an organization called BirdLife have built out their communities to allow their supporters to request reprints of, of receipts um, and to sign up to regular giving. We had another organization called RDOC that support early education intervention. And so they had a community for all of their volunteers to sort of log their hours and to connect with what tasks they have on. And another organization associated with Lifeblood who, you know, are looking after organ donors and things like that. And they had a whole bunch of um, business partners that we use in the community as well. So three really diverse use groups, use cases of Experience Cloud there. Mm, yeah, yeah. It sounds, I mean, really interesting as well and a perfect product fit for the industry. In terms of perfect fits for the industry, I'm really interested in your business because I love your business model, which is very different, right? You, um, I think both for the customer, but also for you, because you know what's important to you. Therefore, that's why you structure your week the way you do and, and structure your business model the way you have. So for listeners, can you tell us a bit about where Salesforce Mentor came from and why you've chosen the business model that you have? Yeah, so uh, 12 months ago, I've just had my um, 12-month anniversary a couple of days ago. 12 months ago, Congrats. I started, yeah, thank you. I started this business because, you know, I'd been a consultant for five years. I was getting a little bit sick of implementation projects, partly because they're just really draining and stressful and, and a lot of hard work. But also, I felt like I wasn't able to deliver the kind of impact for nonprofits that I was really hoping to. And I think about this in terms of, like, imagine that you're building a house, Right. You need to have the house built. You need to have the walls, the roofs, the rooms. All of that needs to be set up and in place. But if that's all you have, it is not a livable house. You need to have the furniture, you know. And if you have the rudimentary furniture in there and you have a place to sleep and a place to cook, fantastic. But when you start to put nice pictures on the walls, when you add some house plants, when you get some cushions and rugs and things like that, that's when the house really feels like a home. That's when you have sort of this warmth and sanctuary built up around it, and it's really someplace that you want to be. So for me, implementation projects are the essential necessary first step of building the house, but then these nonprofits are on their own trying to furnish the house, and they don't necessarily understand Salesforce enough to be able to operationalize it in a way that really gives them the benefits that they're looking for. And they can't really afford to continue to pay consultants two grand a day to pick out cushions for their house, to stretch the analogy. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of be able to be there for nonprofits in a less expensive way, basically. And a lot of times for nonprofits that are looking to get some support around Salesforce, they're quite limited with what they can do. They can look to recruit those skills, which, as you're very aware, is quite difficult in Australia and has been for ages and is just getting worse all the time. If you can even find someone that has all the skills that you're looking for, then they're very expensive to hire at the moment. And a lot of times you need to compromise on the skills that you're hiring. So you either end up with someone with no sales experience or with no nonprofit experience. Your only other option then is to hire a consultant and you're going to be paying $1,500, grand or more per day for someone's help. 
And often they're more interested in that big bang project work rather than the smaller operationalizing stuff that nonprofits really need. So my business is an hour a week or an hour a fortnight working on building the capacity of internal teams. So for organizations that have tried consulting and tried recruitment, realize they're just going to have to do more of that work themselves. Of course, they've got Trailhead and all those online resources and the user group meetings that they can go along to. But often it's almost that there's too much information online. There's too many great things to learn and you kind of get a bit stuck on, should I do this or this one? Or I've narrowed it down to these five options, but which one is the best one? So I can be that person there to help people make those choices or to speed them up on that learning curve. And I really think about who I wish I could have talked to when I was first starting out and my accidental admin and Googling problems late at night in a cold sweat trying to find an answer and I want to be that person for those nonprofits and say, great, let's smash these questions off your list and let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, which I absolutely love because like someone isn't tying themselves into, you know, a, a discovery of three weeks with you and let's, let's do five days a week for three weeks at the cost of, of X, like you mentioned. You're like a, an extension of their team, right? So you're there as an SME to provide guidance for, like you said, an hour a week or an hour a fortnight. And what you're not looking to do is turn that hour a week or hour a fortnight into a project of work. Exactly. You know, unless there's a need for a project of work, which obviously then you'd advise and guide them on that. Because I think a partner that does go in for that kind of support work is often looking to turn that into a bigger piece of work again, that the implementation is already done, but how can we extract another piece of work out of this project, which, you know, you're not looking to do, all you're looking to do is give guidance to companies that really need it, which I think is absolutely, you know, amazing and and it's a, a vital tool for companies in the market. So yeah, I'm really keen to get this podcast out to people that might benefit from that because I think um, there are lots of people out there that probably wouldn't even necessarily know that that's available. Yeah, exactly. There's no one else really doing what I'm doing, which makes it hard for me to market. <laughs> but um, it's it's clearly something that's missing in the space because a lot of people are coming to me and saying this is this is great because it's low risk for them. They can have a couple of sessions with me and see how it goes. And they might be all they need. They had a problem with profiles and I've solved it for them and we've moved on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just technical advice that I'm doing. It's not just like, how do I do this complex thing in Salesforce? I've got customers who have been happily using for Salesforce for a while and are now thinking about starting a fundraising program. And I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not giving them fundraising advice. But I've worked in the space long enough to say, oh, okay, so you're interested in philanthropy. That's the kind of fundraising you're looking to do. That's relational. You're probably going to use opportunities um, in this particular way. This is the sorts of things that you want to be thinking about when you're planning this philanthropy program to get it off the ground. I had a customer say to me the other day, like a sales a lead was talking to me and saying, look, what happens when you get really big and popular and suddenly we're too small and we're not that exciting for you anymore? And I hadn't even thought about this when I started the business, but I was able to say to them, that won't happen because all of my customers are the same value to me. They each pay for an hour a week or an hour and fortnight. It doesn't matter if they're 800 people working at the organization or just the one. They're the same value and I get to value them in the same way. Mm -hmm. So that's who I want to be as a business owner. And my business model is set up to support that, which is so good. And what, what does being a business owner mean to you personally? Like in your personal life, what has that enabled? And having the model that you have, what, what has it meant for you? Yeah, well, you know, I said before that I was getting sick of implementation projects and not delivering value in the way that I want. And that's all very true. But I also was burning out from working in, in that way. And I needed to change the way that I was working. And I didn't want to leave the Salesforce nonprofit space but I couldn't keep working as a consultant in implementation projects. 
So part of starting up this business as well is that it is more the way that I need to work. It better suits my brain and my personality and my personal life as well. I have some complex parenting setups and I keep Friday free to hang out with my kids. And that's a given now. That's how I've set up my business. I also, you know, it's an hour a week that I spend with customers and I'm really clear that I don't do any prep or any follow-up after that. The main reason I do that is I don't want to charge people for four hours of preparation for a one-hour meeting and I don't have to. I've structured it in a way that they write their problems down, we solve it together. I don't need to rock up with the answers to the questions because if I don't have the answer, what I'm modeling for my customers is how to find an answer that you don't have. And often that's 80% of what you need to know with being a Salesforce system admin, right? If you can search for the answer in the right way, you can find the answer on online. So what that means is that I don't have these big pending milestones and I don't have all of this admin work and emails that I need to slog through. I get to do this hour with customer, deliver great value, and then put that work down and move on. And that's really changed my experience of my life. I'm way less stressed. I'm way happier. And I'm feeling like I'm delivering more value for the organizations that I work with as well. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I love the fact that you've been able to continue doing what you're passionate about, but on your terms. Yes, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, look, thank you so much for sharing the story. And um, like I said, I'm going to get this out to as many people as possible that are in the space that you play, because I think there's lots of value there. And, and yeah, obviously, anyone that I think uh, could benefit from a service like this, I'm going to push you away because I really do value the work you're doing. And, and I'm sure they will too. Great. Well, yeah, thank you so much for the chance to talk about it. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. So that's a wrap for this week's episode and thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat and if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.